0: Please join me as we pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your name is blessed, and thank you that as we look to what your word teaches us about what to expect in the future, it's with great excitement and anticipation that we await the coming of the Lord Jesus, just as you've taught us. So we thank you for that, and thank you for the precious verses that we're going to be looking at tonight which detail that for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Is this the rapture? I know what some of you are thinking. Maybe not tonight, maybe tonight, but sure hope it would be before the election. Is that anybody thinking that? (laughs) Let's turn together to Revelation chapter 4. We're going to be looking at Two verses tonight. We ordinarily won't go this slowly through the book of Revelation. The rest of it we'll be taking in some larger sections. But tonight is special because I believe that it is opening the door for us to take a good look at when the Lord Jesus comes back for us. Let me read the first two verses as you follow along. Remember it's John writing and he says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. In one sense, if you've been with us, we've had some interruptions in our study of Revelation, good ones. But uh, in one sense, if you've been with us, it'll surprise you when you hear me say this. And as you look at the chapters still remaining, we've completed two-thirds of our study of the book of Revelation at this point. And that sense is that the book is divided into three main sections. First two sections comprise the first three chapters. The last section covers a lot more material. It covers chapters 4 through 22. So we've really completed two-thirds of our outline of the book, not two-thirds of the book. And we've seen that John has followed his instructions and done what he was told in chapter 1, verse 19. If you'll turn back there for just a moment, we'll remind ourselves what's going on in chapter 1, verse 19. It says here, "...right therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. The things that you have seen, that was chapter 1, particularly verses 9 through 18. I refer to this as the Patmos portrait of Jesus, and I'm sure that's not original, but I don't remember who else has used it uh, to give credit to. But the, the Patmos portrait of Jesus That was the things that John had seen, already recorded back in chapter 1. It's a great vision of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it describes him in great detail, and we've been through that. John also recorded those that are. That was what we've been reading in chapters 2 and 3 and studying over a couple of months ago. The letters to the seven churches... It's the second major point in the divine outline. The NIV calls it what is now. And what is now, because he was living in the now, he was living in the age of the church, and the, the churches were the ones to whom those letters were written. And that what is now, or those that are, comprise the second main section of that outline. The third major point in the outline, according to chapter 1, verse 19, is those that are to take place after this. So you can see the things that you have seen in chapter 1, those that are chapters 2 and 3, and those that are to take place after this in chapters 4 through 22. After this, after what? After the writing of the letters? After John's time? Yes, but more than that. You'll notice that it's the same wording as we saw in the last sentence in chapter 4, verse 1, that we just read. Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. The things that are, or as the NIV said, what is now describe the time frame of the church age, chapters 2 and 3, referring to a specific period of time that has a termination point. Letters were written to representative churches that would exist till the end of the church age. Those that are to take place after this describes what will happen after the church age has run its course. And that's described in chapters 4 through 22. And that's exactly what happens, beginning here with Revelation 4, continuing through the rest of the book. The description beginning in chapter 4 is a description of judgment, of tribulation, of the climax of history. During that time, there are two chapters that take us to heaven, a heavenly scene, chapters 4 and 5, and then we get the tribulation all the way to chapter 19. During that particular time, the church is not seen. And we'll see, say something about that in a few moments. Also adding to the conclusion that beginning with 4.1 in Revelation speaks of events in future from our time, there's a lack of similar events ever having been recorded in history. Here's what John Walvoord says about that. A literal interpretation of the prophecies beginning in chapter 4 is not fulfilled in any historic event and must therefore be regarded from the futuristic viewpoint if it is indeed valid prophecy. The events anticipated in Jesus' promise to show things that must take place later should be regarded as a prediction of events which shall occur at the end of the age. So right now, chapter 4, verse 1 begins some very, very great transitions. Things are going to be changing dramatically in the book of Revelation. And we speak of a transition because the things that are changing between chapter 4 and the rest of the book are among the most significant changes ever, and many of them involve the church. What happens to the church In chapter 4, verse 1, if that really is a transition, what happens to the church? Now, you've probably already noticed this, that heretofore in the study of Revelation, the church has been occupying a very important role. Look back at chapter 1, verse 20. Chapter 1, verse 20, after some symbolism is given for us, What it symbolizes is told for us. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And then following that, all of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3 detail letters to seven churches. So the church is very prominent here in these first three chapters. But from chapter 4 on... There is no mention of the church again on earth until after chapter 19, or until chapter 19, after the tribulation, when the church returns with Christ to the earth. Now, something else you may notice. There's a very familiar phrase that comes up. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what. What the Spirit says to the churches. Now, I haven't recorded on the screen all of those verses that are on your outlines if you picked up an outline, but it's, it's really in each one of the letters it says that in chapter 2, verse 7, verse 11, verse 17, verse 29, chapter 3, verse 6, verse 13, and verse 22. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. But in chapter 13, verse 9, after all that repetition, the same expression, Chapter 13, verse 9, it only says this, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. What happened to what the Spirit says to the churches? Well, the churches aren't in view then, because what is happening is happening on earth. The church isn't there any longer. And Lord willing, we'll see that in in greater detail another time. We'll we'll try to make some, um, some clear evidence or share some clear evidence that the church is in heaven by this time. But it's interesting. What happens to the church? Well, there's no mention of the church from chapters 4 to 19, and what the Spirit says to the churches is conspicuous by its absence later on in the book. Someone has written this, It seems that the church as the body of Christ is out of the picture. And saints who come to know the Lord in this period are described as saved Israelites or saved Gentiles, never by terms which are characteristic of the church, the body of Christ. And so the big question continues to be, where is the church during the earthly devastation of particularly of Revelation 6 through 18? And where is the church during the heavenly scene in chapters 4 and five and I will maintain and hopefully in our study we'll be able to see this the church is safely home in heaven. Lord willing next Sunday night we'll be dealing with just one question and that question will be at what point does the church is the church raptured into heaven? At what point will that take place? And we'll spend the whole time uh, I'll be sharing with you why I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, why it is that the church those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus, will not have to go through that tribulation period. So it is my clear conviction that the church is now safely in heaven as the tribulation begins and as we begin chapter 4, verse 1, here in Revelation. I want to ask if you can help me to see a picture of the rapture here. Let's think through this together. Um, That's our theme tonight. Is this the rapture? There are some unusual things occurring as chapter 4 begins. These things are either remarkably coincidental or they give us a picture or an illustration of the rapture. Look at those words again. I looked and behold, this is chapter 4 verse 1, a door standing open in heaven and the first voice, that was the voice of Jesus in chapter 1 verse 10, the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here And I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Those words may seem very familiar to you because they take place elsewhere in Scripture, not just here in Revelation 4, verses 1 and 2, but elsewhere in Scripture. The rapture, it's a word we've used to describe when Jesus returns to meet the church in the air, It's taken from a Latin word, rapto. It means to catch away or to snatch away. As we read through the Scriptures, we understand there will be a lot of startled and confused people here on earth when all of a sudden, one day, all the genuine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ vanish. That's what the Scripture tells us, tells us very clearly. Let's turn to John 14 for just a moment. John chapter 14. Three great passages that have to do with the rapture. In John 14, here's what Jesus said. He said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. That's Jesus' promise, I'm coming back, and I'm going to take you to be with me forever. What a great promise. That's one of the references we use when we talk about the rapture. You won't find the word rapture itself in the Scripture. You'll find the description of it. It's there. Uh, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 51. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. That means it hasn't been revealed before. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. You're hearing some of the words you heard from Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Listen for them. You'll, You'll be hearing them in here. But he says, We shall not all sleep, But we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. So we understand that it's happening. It's predicted in the scriptures. One more place I want to look at tonight, First Thessalonians chapter four and verse thirteen. This is the one that is probably as familiar as any, maybe more so, to believers in Christ when they think about the return of the Lord Jesus. So it's first Thessalonians chapter four, beginning with verse thirteen. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That is, those who have died. It's a euphemism for those who have died. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. It's okay for us to grieve the loss of a loved one, but we don't have to grieve like those who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage or comfort one another with these words. Now, notice some key points from these three scriptures about the rapture. One of them, I will come again and take you and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. We shall all be changed We get to get rid of these bodies. Wouldn't that be nice? How many of you here are sitting here tonight are in pain in some part of your body? Look around. There are a lot of people that are in pain. I'm in pain. I can't turn my head today. It's, there's something going on here. My knee hurts. My foot hurts. I get to get rid of this body, we're all going to be changed. We get rid of a perishable body and we get something that's imperishable. We get this glorified body. Uh, what a great thing. And it's all going to take place in the twinkling of an eye. Do you notice that expression? In the twinkling of an eye? Or you could say in a flash, but it's not even the blinking of an eye. Blink your eye for just a minute. That took a while. The twinkling of an eye? Twinkle your eye. You can't. It goes that, I mean, it goes faster than I can I can show that. It's saying it's going to happen, and when it happens, it's going to happen very, very quickly. It's going to happen at the last trumpet as well. That trumpet is very significant at the end time. And again, with a cry of command or a loud shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound, again, of the trumpet of God. Now... Make sure you're looking at the first two verses of Revelation chapter 4 right now and look at what happens to John. There's an open door to heaven. It is not the heaven where the birds fly. It's not the starry heavens. It's the third heaven. It's where the presence of God is. It's the one Jesus was referring to in John 14 when he spoke about his father's house and all the rooms in the house that he would take us to be with him forever. That's the heaven that is referred to there. Uh, Maybe it's coincidental that he's referring to the same thing. Jesus and John are referring to the same things here. But you'll notice also that in addition to that open door to heaven and in addition to what Jesus said, there's a voice like a trumpet in verse 1 of chapter 4. That's the voice of Jesus. That's the first voice in verse 10 of chapter 1. And you'll notice a voice like a trumpet. Also, it says at the last trumpet with the sound of the trumpet of God in some of those scriptures we just read. There are a lot of parallels. There are a lot of things that are that are coming to be the same. Come up here, John was told. Remember that cry of command that we read about a few moments ago, that loud shout? At once, supposed to happen. John, come up here at once. Remember, we just read about the twinkling of an eye. There are some who feel that John is a type of the church here in this situation. But at least, if we don't agree with that, we would agree with the fact he's an illustration, he's an object lesson, he's a prefigurement. This, uh, many of the, the Bible scholars who deal in end times theology feel that this description places the rapture right at the beginning of the tribulation. And I believe that's where it belongs anyway. Lord willing, somewhere else in our study we'll look at this in greater in greater depth, but there are some who believe that what is happening here is that John is being carried away into the very future. He's being carried up into heaven, and what he is seeing is not a vision. What he is seeing is what actually will be happening. And we can let people debate that. We'll talk about that at greater length another time. Um, that's not for tonight. But what we see before us here, a clear transition taking place as we come into chapter four it's from earth to heaven when we get into chapter four further we're going to find ourselves in a great heavenly scene that takes chapters four and five we're taken from the present to the future we're taken from the church age of mercy to the time of god's wrath those transitions are all very very evident when we come here to chapter four i like to ask a question often so what what difference does it really make Well, let's consider the implications of this fact. The Lord Jesus Christ must return. Is that true? He must return. Why must he return? Because he said he was, and because God's word said that he was. So he must return. Now, if we just were to look at a little bit of the statistical evidence compiled for us, prophecy occupies one-fifth of Scripture, And the second coming, and I'm using the second coming in a general sense here, which would include both the rapture and the return, second coming occupies one-third of that one-fifth. That means there's a lot about prophecy in the Scriptures. Of the 333 prophecies concerning Christ, only 109 of them were fulfilled in his first coming, leaving 224 yet to be fulfilled in his second coming. But just as surely as the first 109 were fulfilled, so will the 224. Of the 46 Old Testament prophets, less than 10 of them speak of events in Christ's first coming. But 36 of them speak of events connected with his second coming. I think we're beginning to see a picture. There's a huge emphasis in the Scripture on the second coming of the Lord Jesus. He's coming back. He said he was. And the Scriptures keep pointing to it and keep pointing to it. There are a total of 1,527 Old Testament passages referring to the second coming. There are 7,959 verses in the New Testament total, 330 of which refer directly to the second coming. In other words, one out of 25. So if you like statistics, here are some statistics for tonight. Next to the subject of faith, the subject of the second coming is the most dominant subject in the entire New Testament. For every time the first coming is mentioned in the Bible, the second coming is mentioned eight times. For every time the atonement is mentioned once, the second coming is mentioned twice. The Lord refers to his return 21 times. People are exhorted to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ over 50 times to be ready for his return. Uh, Two very important facts. He is coming back. He must come back. He said that he was, and he told us we should be ready. He told us that there are things in our lives that need to be right when he comes back again or else we're going to be ashamed at his coming. There are places we're not going to want to be. There are things that we're doing that we don't want to be doing. There are things that we're saying that we don't want to be saying. There are complainings and grumblings and murmurings that we don't want to find coming from us at all. We want to clean that up. I'd like for us to consider the advantages of being ready for Christ's return. What advantages are there to us to be ready? Because he is coming back. He told us that. And this, I believe, is the transition in the book of Revelation where it will take place after that church period, that church age. There are seven advantages of being ready for Christ's return that I'd like to share. If you've got an outline in front of you, there's some blanks to fill out, and it shouldn't be hard. But first of all, it helps us to relate to trials. We see things from God's perspective. We're relating to trials, and we're relating to trials even in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back again. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, listen as I read these verses In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Do you know what that's saying? Trials are our friends. We don't often think of trials as our friends, but it says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is when he is revealed. So we're told rejoice. We've got trials that are coming, even though we've been grieved by some of them. It tests the genuineness of our faith. It's more precious than the gold that the world thinks is so precious that won't last, and it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus is revealed. The way we handle trials here will result in praise and honor and glory when Jesus comes back again. That's something to look forward to. More perspective on trials in Romans 8.18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. So what a great promise again. The sufferings of this present time, they're not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Another thing we want to see as we anticipate the fact that the Lord Jesus is definitely coming back again, it assures us of God's justice. How many times have you said it's not fair? How many times have you heard other people say, "It's not fair." As we celebrate soon the um, day of prayer for the persecuted church, we look at some of the things that are going on in our world today. We could shake our heads and we could say, it's not fair what Christians are going through around this world. But here's what it says in, first, in Second Thessalonians chapter one, verses five through seven. It says, "All this is evidence that God's judgment is right." And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. Well, when's that going to be? This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Yes, there will be justice. It will be coming. It may not come when we want it to because we want it immediately. We want everything to be fair right now, but the promise is when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels, we're going to see what it says here. God's judgment is right. You'll be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you're suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. There is a day of reckoning. It will occur, and it will occur in keeping with the coming of the Lord Jesus. Why else can we look forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus? Why should we be anticipating it? It gives us encouragement and comfort, even when we're separated now from our loved ones who have already died. How many of you have somebody in heaven waiting for you, you believe? You've got somebody there waiting for you. That's great. And that person is not going to be shortchanged because that person will not take place in the rapture as we know it, but but that person will be there if that person is a believer, it will be caught up together in the air to meet the Lord. So the encouragement and the comfort, even when separated from our loved ones, we read earlier, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in verses 16 through 18. That's when the Lord himself is descending from heaven. There's going to be the shout and the voice of the archangel. The trump of God will sound dead in Christ rise first. And those of us who are alive and remain will be caught up together in the air to meet him. Interesting that how that ends. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Other translations say comfort each other with these words. I had a, uh, memorial service yesterday speaking of one who is with the lord talking about a reunion a great reunion one day in heaven together for believers in christ you never have to say goodbye to your loved ones you just say see you later you never have to say goodbye and that's the comfort that we see here there's more looking forward to the coming of the lord jesus it actually gives us light according to what peter tells us in second peter chapter 1 verse 19 it gives us light and we have something more sure the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts We've got the prophetic word of God to give us light, but there's coming a day when Jesus comes. We're going to get even more light because it says until the, day, the, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, talking about the time of the Lord Jesus coming. Why else is that anticipation something good for us? Because it gives us hope as well. And you've heard this verse many times in Titus 2.13. Waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We see the deity of Christ in this verse, the divinity of Christ. We're waiting for that blessed hope when he appears. He promised he'd come back, and he told us to be ready. And he gave us a lot of good reasons to be ready, and he gave us a lot of great things to anticipate. So we're waiting for that blessed hope. Kind of helps to get you through some of those tough days. And I know some of you have been having some of those tough days. But someone has said, keep looking up, the best is yet to come, because the Lord Jesus will be back for us. It's also one of the greatest motivators that we have for pure living. In the meantime, while we're waiting for Jesus to come back, how should we be living? Should we all be saying, I've got eternity covered, I receive the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior, it doesn't matter how I live, I'm still going to go to heaven. God will not deny himself because I invited Christ to save me from my sins. Uh, Is that what the Bible teaches? It doesn't at all. First John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears... We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We want to be as pure as we can possibly be when the Lord Jesus comes back again. When he appears, that's always talking about the the time when Jesus comes back to get us. Colossians chapter 3. Verses 4 and 5. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, and then there is a list. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. The anticipation of the return of the Lord Jesus tells us one other thing, at least one other thing that I'm going to mention tonight, and that is simply it tells us that we need to be saved. We need to be ready. Wouldn't it be a shame if the Lord Jesus went to the great lengths that he did in his word with all of those prophecies, all of those scriptures, where Jesus tells us he's coming back again, and somebody ignores that, and somebody says, well, maybe he'll be back, maybe not, I don't care, Uh, It tells us we need to be ready, and it tells us we need to be saved. One of the uh, devotional writers said this, When I was a boy, I took a tour of Henry Ford factory in Dearborn, Michigan. Then we saw an electromagnetic crane move over a large railroad car filled with what seemed to be junk steel. At the flip of a switch, everything in that train car leaped up to the magnetic crane. Then I saw a strange thing. Some pieces of steel fell back into the train car. I waited until others had left on the tour and then climbed up to look inside and find out why these pieces fell back in. I found they were not steel at all. Lying on the bottom of the car were some old two-by-fours, a broom handle, and some broken pieces of wood. Only objects made of the right component responded to the magnet. The rest were left behind. You don't need to be left behind. Jesus is coming back. He warned us to be ready, and he gave us the instructions we need in order to be able to be with him for all of eternity. He's more sure of what is pure than the greatest magnet known to mankind here's a sobering verse from Hebrews 4:13 and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. During his 1960 presidential campaign, John Kennedy often closed his speeches with the story of Colonel Davenport, who was the Speaker of the Connecticut House of Representatives. One day in 1789, the sky of Hartford darkened ominously. Some of the representatives glancing out the windows feared that this was it. They thought the end was at hand. It was so dark and so unusual for that to take place in the middle of the day that they were terrified. Quelling a clamor for immediate adjournment, Davenport got up and said, The day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there is no cause for adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. Therefore, I wish that candles be brought and our meeting continue. Rather than fearing what is to come, we're to be faithful till Christ returns. Instead of fearing the dark, we're to be lights as we watch and as we wait. And so as we're thinking about the Lord Jesus, he said, I'll be back. He has to come back because he's good to his word. And he told us we have to be ready. We have to be ready, but consider the advantages, again, of being ready for his return. It helps us relate to trials. It helps us to be assured of God's justice. It gives us encouragement. It gives us great comfort. It even gives us light along the way. It gives us hope. It's a great motivator for pure living, and it tells us we don't want to be left behind. It tells us that we want to be saved His way by repenting of our sin and acknowledging the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, inviting Him to come into our lives. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the book of Revelation. We thank You for these two verses that begin chapter 4. We thank You for the transition the transition from earth to heaven, from the present to the future. We thank you that there there's a door standing open in heaven, and we're going to pass through that like John did at some point. And there's going to be a trumpet, and there's going to be a voice, and it's going to say, come up here. Thank you for that, and thank you that at once that will take place, and that we're going to be there with you for all of eternity. And thank you that as we anticipate that great event, that we have lives to live, lives to live that you've charted out in the scriptures for us to live, to be pure, to be before you everything that the Lord Jesus Christ would be proud of. So help us to live to that end in anticipation of that return of the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.